Welcome to this BJSM podcast, and I'm delighted to be with Kieran O'Sullivan. He's a triple threat, as we like to think of it in sports medicine and physiotherapy, because he uh, sees patients with complicated back pain. He's academic in the sense that he works at university, in this case, University of Limerick, and he completed his PhD on sitting behaviour in back pain. So he's an absolute expert and uh, has got a lot of practical experience that he's going to share with you in the next 20 minutes. Kieran, thanks for joining the podcast. So, you know, we don't have time to check out all the papers ourselves and do the heavy work on reading of the literature. So why don't you summarise for us really concisely what a whole bunch of systematic reviews would tell us if we had time to look at what the literature says about effective treatments for low back pain. So I guess if we look at a, a lot of the, the major, large, randomized control trials and systematic reviews, what we see is that there are a lot of different treatments offered, which all offer a similar level of effectiveness. That is that a range of different treatments from exercise, cognitive behavioral therapy, to some surgical and pain medicine interventions, they all seem to help pain a little bit and disability to a moderate extent. Uh, intriguingly, however, they don't seem to be particularly more effective than another. So these seemingly quite different treatments like cognitive behavioral therapy and surgery, they seem to be offering a similar level of effectiveness. And that's quite confusing for many of us. So that leads us then to wonder, well, what is the mechanism of effect through which these treatments are, are, are working? Because physiotherapists and psychologists and sports physicians might think that they're offering or treating people in a very different way. So quite recently, we did a, another systematic review looking at the overall effectiveness of three different broad groups of treatment. We took all non-pharmacological, -pharma uh, non-surgical interventions, and we divided them into three groups. There was physical rehabilitation, uh, behavioral intervention, and thirdly, interventions which combined behavioral and physical rehabilitation. And what we found across a range of different measures, such as pain and disability, is that there was very little and usually no difference at all between these seemingly different interventions. And I suppose the most interesting Thing we noticed in that was that when these interventions were combined, which you know intuitively would think would be a better intervention, the effect size was really, really small. So it does again beg the question, are these um, interventions not adding to each other, or is it possibly an indication that these interventions sometimes are um, not integrated properly, where the advice received by one form of physical rehabilitation is contradicted by a, a behavioral intervention? And which of those do you think it is? I think it could be um, down to two things particularly. First of all, I think a lot of these interventions, which again can be effective, are not targeted to the individual. That's one component. So I wouldn't, for example, be giving a person a, an, an intervention to reduce their fear if they weren't a particularly fearful person. In fact, it, um, whereas in some people that would be very important. Um, and I think, for example, there are times when you will want a, a large cognitive component to your intervention, but randomized control trials miss that aspect. So I think that's one key component that randomized control trials, their very nature suggests that, you know, the two interventions are given very homogeneously. I think the second possibility as well is that you have people possibly giving a physical rehabilitation intervention who are giving contradictory advice on maybe the structure and the integrity of the spine to people giving a cognitive behavior intervention. And you hear this from patients in the clinic where they say, well, you know, I went to see the psychologist and they said, like, don't think about your back, move on with your life. And they went to see the physiotherapist and they said, whatever you do, don't ever stop thinking about your back and, and focus on the muscles and the posture and so on. And we can't blame patients if they get confused by some of these things. So one of the things we're trying to do in our research group is to try and look at, well, can we better target the intervention so that the right people get the right type of intervention? And also 
try to make sure that there's a more consistent message between different healthcare professionals when they're treating an individual patient. The message later, but before we do that, does the literature tell us things not to do? Yes, and the uh, the bad thing about this is that it seems to suggest that lots of the things I used to do with my patients are those kind of things. So um, if we look at um, the basics of things like bed rest, you know, when it, somebody gets sore, it's um, natural to want to rest in the short term for a little period of time. What we see very consistently, however, is the longer they rest and avoid normal activities, the more likely they are to have a recurrent consistent problem. So prolonged bed rest looks like it's a particularly bad strategy. There are lots of other interventions then that seem to have little or no effect. So for example, some of the interventions like traction and many of the electrotherapies that have been used in the past seem to have little or no effect in the, in the medium or long term. Um, if we want to look at, I suppose, a, a whole range of very novel interventions that are very topical at the moment, there are a whole series of novel injection therapies and, and other types of approaches, which again, the evidence is not that convincing at the moment. Um, so there's lots of, I suppose, room for improvement in that kind of an area. Kieran, we're going to pick your brains now on the things that you've learned in 15 years working in back pain. You're in the clinic, you've studied it. What have you learned a few things now that you wish you'd known 15 years ago? Um, well, I guess one of the big things that I've learned about back pain um, over the years is that back pain, despite what society and healthcare providers often think, is that it's not a, a fundamentally more dangerous problem than anything else. So, you know, the, the world is full of people who've sprained their ankle who may be relieved that, well, at least it's just my ankle because there's a perception that, you know, lots of parts of the body heal, but the back is something that once you injure it, it is never something that recovers properly. Um, so I, I, I suppose I was trained with a background where the back was viewed as a vulnerable structure, which was very easy to injure, and once it got injured, it was very hard to recover. And yet the more we look at the literature, the more we know that the back is similar to shoulders and elbows and hips and knees, that of course it can get injured, um, but lots of people recover. And in fact, you know, it would be thoroughly abnormal to not have back pain at some point in your life. Having back pain is like having sadness, tiredness, constipation, diarrhea. These are, you know, health, fact, health uh, incidents that happen in every healthy person from time to time. So being sad, you know, when you've had a breathing is normal. However, profound depression is a very different thing. Being tired when you have a small baby in the house is nat is natural, but chronic fatigue is a very significant health complaint. And having back pain when you've done some when you've had a trauma or a fall or done some unaccustomed activity is normal and shouldn't be catastrophized. Whereas I would have been trained with the I suppose my bias would have been to think well. Pain is a, an indication of hurt or harm, and of course, people from, particularly experts like Lauren or Mosley, have really got us to stop and think about how accurate an indicator of tissue damage something like pain is. And it's important that when we give that message to patients that we try to reinforce the idea that you know, your back isn't damaged, that they don't feel their pain is being dismissed. Their pain is very real. The pain is there, but it's important that we encourage them to do the things that are very important. Um, so if I was a patient and a physio told me, keep bending, and keep exercising. And I thought that was damaging to my back. I wouldn't do it. So if we really want to talk about patient compliance, you know, their behaviors about in terms of compliance are strongly influenced by their beliefs. So for them to do exercise, they must think exercise is not dangerous, it's not damaging, and it's something I can do. What's the second thing you've thought about? I suppose uh, one of the other things is um, related to how we can see low back pain being similar to lots of other common you know, intermittent health conditions. So we're quite comfortable with the idea if we look at things like headaches, 
that you know headaches can be caused by you know systemic health conditions so for example in Ireland you can get lots of headaches related to alcohol but separate to that you can get situations where somebody's sleep deprived they're working shifts they're highly stressed um, where they'll get headaches and when that person presents to their GP or their physio they're never usually asked with a headache how did you damage your head what was the trauma that caused it whereas when that person presents with back pain related to a similar type of um, life events there's an almost instinctive response to wonder, well, you must have hurt because you've come in with back pain. And again, I'm not saying that that doesn't happen, but why is it that we have this idea that when you get back pain, it's always exclusively about injury? Yet when a child gets tummy pain, when, a, when an adult gets pain in their head, that we're more comfortable with the idea that that pain can be a marker of their overall systemic health. I think this is analogies. One of the analogies I use myself with my patients and on my courses is, chronic health conditions or intermittent health conditions like getting cold sores. So for example, just under two years ago we had our, our first little baby boy and about a month after he was born I developed a very minor health condition called a cold sore. And when I discuss this with people we're quite comfortable with the idea that cold sores are, you know, there's a biological virus which is you know, a clear trigger but equally it only came to the surface when I was a bit sleep deprived, a bit stressed, not getting the same amount of exercise, not eating as well. But once my immune system, my overall health improves, that cold sore virus doesn't cause any symptoms. Now that cold sore virus is still in my body at the moment, but it's not causing any symptoms. And I think there are parallels there when we think about things like facet joint degeneration, annular tears in the disc, or in other parts of the body, you know, a tendon that's a little bit degenerative, or a rotator cuff tear. That there may be certain, you know, nociceptive inputs from tissues or certain viruses that are in our system but if our overall health is good, our, our local tissues are healthy and our systemic health is good, that they don't necessarily have to become symptomatic. And so the practical implication from that framework is? So I think a lot of that comes back to we are not forgetting about the tissues in the back, but we're not just treating the tissues. We're treating that person. And sometimes that person will... Um, they will come in and everything they see suggests this is a very local tissue problem. So if we look at somebody who comes in moving away from the back. If we look at somebody who comes in with a pain in the posterior thigh who says, I got a sudden sharp pain while I was sprinting, doing something I wasn't accustomed to, and it's tender on palpation, it hurts when they contract their hamstrings, it hurts when it's stretched, it's not a it's not rocket science to figure out what's going on there. And sometimes we see back pain that's very much like that. It's localized, it's related to a significant event, and it's aggravated and eased in a particular manner. In contrast, although we see other situations where the patient describes no specific traumatic event and where the aggravating and easing factors aren't quite as straightforward and consistent. Um, even while here today I saw several patients where we dealt with back pain which was closely correlated with life events and these can sometimes be stopping exercising, sometimes rapidly increasing the amount of exercise they do. And then when you look at fluctuations in exercise, they usually coincide with changes in mood or work habits or work-life balance or stress or sleep and so on. So again, it's not forgetting about the issues in the tissues, but looking at when they might be more important and when they might be just one little part of a, a bigger picture. So you've prepared us for your approach to a patient. And uh, so for the more junior physios who are looking for tips in terms of your assessment, um, you highlighted seven or eight sort of factors that you like to look at um, when you're assessing a patient. And can you just take the listener through that approach? So one of the things I suppose we, we want to think about is that how can a, when a person, a patient, presents with back pain, it's, we, it looks like the care they receive is 
predominantly decided by the person they see. Now that might be patient preference as well, but you know, when somebody goes to see a GP, it's very likely they're going to get some medication. If they go to see a chiropractor, it's very likely they're going to get manipulation. And if they go to see a physiotherapist, it's very likely they're going to get some manual therapy in excess. Now again, I know that's a stereotype, but I do think there is some validity to that point. So which is it? Is it that one of those treatments is magically better and the other two groups are kind of, you know, incompetent? Or are they all equally relevant and it doesn't matter at all? Um, because what, I, what I'm getting out of that is I think all of us should be aware of all the different options that are available and, and then see, well, all these particular options, what's mo most or least relevant. So we discussed two patients that were there this, um, this morning. And if we look at one specific example, they, they, they sounded quite similar. They were both young guys in their early 20s who had been quite fit and quite athletic, but were unable to perform at their level of sport for the last two years. So they were, but again, no radiating leg pain, no neurological deficits. But in one simple thing, they were very different. One of them reported profound relief with anti-inflammatory medications, and the other one reported no relief whatsoever. The guy who reported great relief with the anti-inflammatories also reported early morning stiffness, closely related to pain and stiffness after an activity. So he reported a range of factors which would suggest a large inflammatory component to his pain. And rather than sometimes thinking, well, are anti-inflammatories any good or are any of the more up-to-date anti-inflammatory medications, we want to stop and think about, well, first of all, what's the likelihood that the underlying mechanism is related to inflammation? Because if it isn't, we shouldn't even, that shouldn't even be on the menu. And in contrast to that guy, the other patient who had also had tried the anti-inflammatories and they were ineffective, he did not report the morning stiffness, but he reported pain uh, problems across a range of other, of other domains. So that's why when we discussed those, if I looked at, I suppose, the, the seven domains or something that we looked at, the first one is looking at just the stage of the disease, because we know the more chronic it is, the more likely it is that it's not going to heal to natural recovery. And we've got to remember that if you only treat chronic pain, which is probably where I am at the moment, we can forget that most people get better. Okay, the people we see are the people who didn't get better, and that's the minority. We should never forget um, that as a physio, I might see less of the some some of the serious pathologies. So never rule out the fact that there will be sometimes where you'll see people with cord equina problems, fractures, TB, a range of different health complaints. So they always have to be part of your screening process on that second level. The third level would be looking at their underlying pain mechanism. So that's getting back to my earlier point about well, is this a problem with the tissues which are sore, irritated, overloaded? Or is this a, a more of an indicator, um, if I give a, a more extreme example, of somebody with chronic widespread pain, chronic fatigue, poor mental health, who is not just sore, but sick and sore? Because these patients who both have very real, valid complaints might need a slightly different approach. Lastly, we come to four kind of target areas for rehabilitation. Looking at the patient's cognitions and their beliefs. So what do they believe is wrong with them? How fearful are they? What's their mental health like? Looking at the person's social support in their, so, their social life, so their work-life balance, their satisfaction of work, their relationships, their family situation, has that had an impact on them? Looking um, at their lifestyle, so for example, the big picture health factors like sleep, stress, activity levels, is this person's overall health good? And finally, the one that the physios might be biased towards, looking at their physical movement characteristics. So is this person moving in ways that are suboptimal, that might lead to inappropriate loading? And I would say as physios, particularly as somebody like myself, I would definitely have overcomplicated my assessment of, of movement behaviours. Now, I'm not saying there isn't a skill to it, but if I'm going to say somebody has profound pain and it's all about the way they move, I'm going to say that, you know, that should be very obvious to someone without being an expert on it. And I, I would definitely have been guilty of sweating the small stuff around these things. So if I look at across those different domains, one of the 
frustration some of physios would have said to me on courses is that it's a bit complex because, you know, we'd like a recipe, we're all human. Um, but what we really want to do is kind of say, well, I don't have to provide the, 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 the cure for all these things. There will be times in my own practice where I will feel that there are some psychological factors here that are beyond my scope, but I'm going to label them, tell the patient I think they're important, and with the patient's consent, get them a little more support. I'm, there are going to be times where I'll feel this person needs a little bit more help with their excess prescription or their sleep hygiene or, you know, a range of other factors. And, and physios shouldn't be afraid, or sports medicine physicians shouldn't be afraid of targeting some of these factors in themselves. So, for example, I'm not a dietitian, but I'm quite happy to tell a person if I feel their weight is a factor, and I could maybe give them some basic advice around diet. But then there will be times when that's not enough and they'll need specific um, advice from a, from a dietitian. And I would see the same with psychological factors. There, I think nobody should shy away from identifying with patients that this can be a factor. So, for example, even in athletes, if they've got a, a recurrent injury, they can start becoming fearful about participating, about contact in the sport. And me addressing that isn't telling them the pain is in their head, but it's identifying that that's a real factor. I can help them to move with less pain. That's addressing some of the fear around that. But then in some small situations, again, onward referral will be different. That is, of course, again, I accept frustrating because it it leaves a lot of the, the I suppose, the responsibility with the therapist to make, the, to make those decisions. But, you know, if we think broadly and then target our treatments more, in a, in a more strategic manner, I think we're likely to have more of an effect. Now, we don't have enough evidence from that, but we have one from a, an RCT done by Sharpen by Fersen in Norway, suggesting that if you start targeting these more effectively, it's one of the first RCTs to show that the effect sizes are quite a bit better. And Kieran, just to bring us to a close, communication is clearly an important thing, and you were saying in our preparatory discussion that uh, you've, you've thought about that and you've got some suggestions. Yes, um, I, I, I guess, you know, we, we focus a lot on getting our patients, it comes from the, the old medical model of getting our patients to obey or comply or adhere with what we do, but they will only ad adhere or comply with what we're saying if they think it's valid and it's understandable. Um, so, as a test, I guess, of, of how well I've communicated with patients, I always ask them at the end of each appointment to paraphrase for me how they would describe to their husband, wife or loved ones when they leave the, the appointment what I said and what I felt should be done. And believe me, this can be an eye-opening experience because I will have sworn and I will have convinced myself that I did an A1 job of getting my message across in a non-judgmental, empathetic manner. But whether it's the Irish accent or mumbling late at night, sometimes these messages get mixed up. And it was a great way for me to learn that words, which I felt weren't medical and weren't technical, were actually very, very confusing with patients. Um, and again, I don't mean in any way that that means we should be talking down to patients or treating them like that they are they can't handle what we're talking about. But, you know, when I get go to my car mechanic to get my car fixed, uh, he's a really nice guy and he fixes my car so I'm happy, but he feels obliged to tell me these technical things that are happening under the car. It doesn't inform me at all. But thankfully, it's not my responsibility to fix them. But when we're communicating with patients, we are handing over responsibility for some of these things. So, you know, I don't mention quadratus lumborum and I don't mention intervertebral foramen or lots of the technical terms that I think, you know, some physios do use, some healthcare professionals do use, which might just leave um, a little hint of confusion in the person's mind. So whereas what I want them to say, everybody's story is different, of course, but what I want them to say when they're leaving is, he acknowledged my pain. This is sore, but it's not serious. It does hurt, but it's not harmful. And while there are some specific things that are holding me back from recovering, there's a good few of these factors that I can work on with the help of him or her. 
fantastic. Kieran, let's leave it there. Thanks so much for being on the BJSM podcast. People can find you on um, many courses around the world and I know you're part of the Pain Ed Group. It's been a real privilege to have you on the podcast. Thanks a ton. Thank you very much. And you can find other BJSM podcasts by following us on Twitter, checking the BJSM app, and you can tell us who you'd like to have on podcasts by tweeting us or sending emails or sending us snail mail. We're keen to hear from you. Thanks for listening.